We are going to be in the book of Philippians. We're starting into a series uh, here on the theme of joy. It started uh, last week, but uh, Philippians is certainly a book that is focused on that great theme. And it seemed that it resonated a bit with some of you. I received some really nice uh, texts, uh, people just feeling encouraged, excited to kind of consider the topic, and, uh, and, and also some, some pushback, which is good. I, I'm encouraged by pushback. Uh, people wrestling with how some of these themes come together and uh, asking some really good, good questions. Uh, is it possible to be joyful and upset at the same time? Like, are they mutually exclusive categories? Is joy something that we receive automatically as a Christian? Or is it something that I have to cultivate? You know, is it just a, a new data chip that gets inserted and then I'm joyful now? Or, or is there more to it than that, right? Uh, how can Paul command these believers to rejoice? We're actually going to get into that in chapter 4. But Paul uh, issues imperative commands to rejoice, to be joyful. And so that was one of the questions posed to me. To what extent can we control our feelings? I just feel how I feel. Can I change that? How can I just be commanded to feel a certain way? Um, I used uh, a couple of quotes at the outset trying to give some definitions for joy last week. And... uh, a couple of those quotes use the word peace. You know, that joy is sort of this underlying uh, confidence. And, and the, the question was posed to me, isn't joy more than just peace, though? You know, isn't there... Uh, why, you know, Paul could have just written about experiencing peace, but he didn't. He wrote about experiencing joy, which seems to convey something stronger, something more positive, so a, a, lot, a lot of wrestling this week, and it helped me to uh, kind of sharpen my thinking a bit. And um, yeah, another person, how do, I, how do I think about joy in the context of my chronic depression? How does that fit? Am I somehow being disobedient because I feel cruddy? Uh, how, how do I process that? So, so a, lot of, a lot of good things hopefully we can unpack as we move through our study here in uh, Paul's letter to the church in Philippi. Uh, Here in this opening chapter of Philippians, the section we're going to look at today, Paul connects his joy to his relationship with these believers. Uh, There's a sense in which Paul seems to sort of feed off of these believers, that they are a catalyst, They, they help to fuel and stir his joy. Paul's joy is somehow enhanced because of these relationships. There's a sense in which they push each other and encourage one another. One of the words that's used to describe this kind of a concept is synergy. I don't know if this is in your vocabulary or not, but it's a really good word. Uh, It could be defined this way, the interaction of elements that when combined produce a total effect that is greater than the sum of the individual elements. So we could think about it in the natural world. Um, Oxen 
uh, are very strong creatures, right? They can pull uh, 500 pounds. Uh, two oxen pulling separately then could pull 1,000 pounds, but two oxen yoked together, pulling together, can pull 1,500 pounds. They can, they can pull 50% more together than they can individually. Uh, or geese, right? Geese fly in these V formations, and they can fly, estimates are, 72% further in formation than they can flying solo. So, of course, the lead bird is taking the main drag, and the others are drafting behind that lead bird, right? And then periodically the lead bird will fall out of the, uh, the front. Someone else will take that spot, and, and that lead bird will draft for a while. And uh, again, flying in this way, they can fly further and fly longer. I'm also told that they, uh, the ones in the back honk to encourage the ones in the front. I don't know if that's actually true. I didn't find any scholarly sources on that. Okay, so we'll take it with a grain of salt. I always, you know, we notice these geese are honking all the time, and that I guess would make sense. You got it, Frank. Go, Susie. One more mile, and then we'll, 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 uh, we'll, we'll come up and help you. But they're honking and, and pushing one another on. In any regard, they're doing more and flying further than they could do alone. So this is the idea of, of synergy, and I, and I think we're seeing something of that in Paul. He is receiving joy or being stirred to joy by these believers in the church in Philippi. He's being propelled by this, by this partnership. Uh, so this is, this is really my, my big idea statement, I think, that kind of summarizes this text, that gospel partnerships produce joy. One of the, one of the, the sources of joy in the life of the Christian is relationships within the body of Christ. And I think we're going to see that played out here in uh, the opening chapter. Uh, Paul maintained a regular pattern of praying for these believers, and that's what we see at the outset here. Paul uh, gives us a glimpse into his prayer life. We learn what he prays for, um, and we get a sense of sort of the spirit of his prayer. Um, and so let's look at the opening verses here. Philippians 1, verse 3. Philippians 1, 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, Always, in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. Paul uses an interesting expression here in verse 4. I am making my prayer with joy. Uh, Or in one translation, in all of my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. So again, Paul is connecting joy uh, with his prayers for these believers. Uh, Scripture doesn't always present prayer this way, by the way. Um, We read of people wrestling in prayer, 
laboring in prayer. We have Jacob, right, in the Old Testament who is, is meeting with God, wrestling with God. His, his hip joint is put out of joint, uh, and he leaves that encounter with a limp. Uh, we actually have the word, our English word, agonize, people agonizing in prayer. This is another common description. We have Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, Uh, sweating drops of blood under intense pressure in the garden of the olive press, the garden of Gethsemane. Uh, So prayer isn't always easy or pleasant or natural. Uh, It takes work. Uh, But this is an interesting expression where Paul actually says, uh, when I pray for you, every, every time I think of you, at every remembrance of you, I pray with joy. There's, a, there's something that just wells up in me when I, when I pray for you and when I think about the friendships that we have and what we've been through together. So, so this kind of sets the tone here for what Paul's going to say about prayer and, and the prayer that he's going to actually pray for these believers. He's doing it with joy. And the question is why? <laughs> what, what about the relationship with these believers inspired him to joy. Um, I'm going to suggest three things out of the text here this morning that I'm going to say are are catalysts for joy in 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 terms of how relationships can stir us to joy. Number one, we're moved to joy by long-term partnerships in the gospel. We're moved to joy by long-term partnerships in the gospel. So we pick up here in verse 5. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, verse 6, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So he says, I'm making my prayer with joy, verse 4, and then immediately into verse 5, because, right? Why am I praying with joy? Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Now, uh, the word here, partnership, is uh, our word for fellowship. Uh, we would maybe say we have fellowship together or, or we're getting together for, for fellowship, for, for good conversation, right? We, that's usually what we mean by that word. Um, uh, it actually means sharing or to have something in common. And so this, this idea of partnership is a, is, a, is a good translation here. Paul's thankful for the partnership that he has with them. Uh, but it's particularly a, a partnership that has been formed over time. He makes this reference to um, from the first day until now. I think probably Paul is reflecting back on the establishment of the church in Philippi when Paul first planted this church, probably 10 or 12 years previous. He's thinking about... Um, you know, initially there, there were no uh, Jewish men. There wasn't enough people to have a synagogue in Philippi. So uh, they, they find a group of women gathered outside the city by the river. And that's the first, the first context where they had to talk to people and to share the gospel. And Lydia, an entrepreneurial businesswoman, comes to Christ. And then, of course, Paul and Silas uh, find themselves in jail because of the gospel. And the hardened Philippian jailer, Uh, comes to Christ. And so I think this is what he's talking about. From the first day, from from the initial beginnings of this church until now, we have experienced a partnership in the gospel. And this brought Paul great 
joy. Uh, We're not sure exactly what Paul means by sharing how they shared in the gospel together. Um, Part of what he means could could be just that they both had experienced God's grace, right? They they had that in common. (laughs) They were now brothers and sisters in the family of God. So there was a sharing in the gospel in that sense. It could also be that Paul had in mind that they both were sharing in the ministry of the gospel. So Paul is traveling from place to place, from city to city, from continent to continent, uh, sharing the gospel, and they were doing the same in Philippi. So they had this shared mission together in the gospel. Maybe all of this is encompassed when Paul talks about their partnership in the gospel, but it had been established uh, over time. Uh, Paul read Romans 16 for us this morning. Perhaps you might think it an odd scripture reading, right? A listing of all of these names. But it's part of what I wanted you to see is Paul's heartbeat for relationships. He was writing to the whole church in Rome, but he singled out a number of individuals and reflected on the nature of their friendship. He talks about Rufus and uh, greet Rufus and his mother, who has been a mother to me also. You know, he says, uh, these individuals, because they risked their life for me. Or these people were my co-workers, or they labored, they toiled alongside of me in the work of the gospel. All the little designations there. All these people meant something to Paul. Uh, there was a depth of relationship because of a shared mission Depth of relationship that was centered in the gospel. So Paul takes this look backward from the first day until now, and then he actually adds that little extra in verse 6. And and I'm confident that God is going to finish what he started. Gives a great statement about the sovereignty of God. And it's not just about you and your effort to keep plugging along, but God is at work in sustaining you and, and protecting you and bringing you to the finish line and forming you after the pattern of Christ, right? So uh, this wonderful reflection on their relationships, long-term relationships. Sherry and I came to this local church in the fall of 1995. I came to town for seminary and was working here part-time, working at UPS part-time. Sherry and I were newlyweds. And um, there's not very many of you that go back that far. I've got a pretty short list in front of me. I probably have missed somebody on it, but the Zydemas and the Moldas and Jim Seitzma and Dave Stevens and Kathy Murray and Rick and Diane Godinez right around that same time. So we have a little club going. No, I'm just kidding. We don't have a club. But, but the, there, there is just sort of this depth of relationship that you, you, you can't manufacture in a moment. It comes with time. There's a lot of other people that haven't been here 26 years, but they've been here 20 years or 15 or 10 or 5. But relationships take time. That's the point. And, um, you know, the, 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 the sitcom Cheers back in my generation, you know, wanting to be where everybody knows your name. You know, we all want to be known, to have a depth of, 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 of relationship. Um, I was thinking about this with, uh, in relationship to, to Tim. Taylor. Um, Debbie always kept a close watch on Tim. Since his brain injury, I think his, his filter went 
with his brain injury. And uh, so she would always be guarding over him. And yet there was a sense of security. I think Debbie would acknowledge this. A sense of security when they would come to church. Because we know Tim. Tim knows us. There's no explanations needed. We're family. And there was a security in that. There's a joy in those kinds of relationships where we are known. And this is what Paul's reflecting on here. I pray, I'm praying with joy because of our partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. These long-term gospel partnerships. a unique bond that comes in the gospel. I would be remiss if I didn't ask you, even here at the outset, uh, if you have entered into gospel partnership, if you have become part of the family of God. Paul's describing something really sweet that um, unbelievers can experience. These people had come to a recognition of their sin. They had experienced God's grace. And there's a sweetness of fellowship and joy that comes in being part of the family of God, reconciled to God. In our natural condition, we are God's enemies. Our sin makes us rebels to God. And something happens in the gospel where we're reconciled, not just to God, but where we are able to be reconciled to one another. It's a sweet and wonderful thing. And I I submit that to you. If you've never come to the end of your sin... Uh, the end of yourself, and you've never recognized your sin, and you've never recognized your need of salvation. Uh, the, the offer of the gospel is an offer of reconciliation and peace, an offer to be a part of God's family, to be reconciled to a heavenly Father. But in addition to that, I, I think we have to ask ourselves the question at this point, are you investing in these types of long-term relationships and partnerships in the gospel? Uh, Paul always traveled in teams, Look at that list in Romans 16, right? He, 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 he valued these significant partnerships with other believers. Our culture is generally more individualistic. People tend to be more isolated from one another. What would it look like for you to enter into these kinds of relationships? What would it mean to join a ministry team, to enter into a gospel partnership How could that impact your joy? It wouldn't happen overnight. There's an awkwardness to getting to know new people, to forming new friendships, but there's a long-term payoff to investing in relationships. And Paul reflects on that here. So we're moved to joy when we experience long-term partnership in the gospel. We're also moved to joy when we share in the struggle of a worthy cause. Paul uses the word because again here in verse 7. He's going to talk again about why he feels this sense of joy. He says, it is right for me to feel this way about you, about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. 
So again, it's right for me to feel this way about you. It's right for me to feel joy and to feel a sense of gratitude for you because, because we have a, a partnership in God's grace. He uses that same root word here for partnership or fellowship. It's a word that's used to describe the, the fishing partnership between Simon Peter and James and John. Before they became followers of Jesus, they were fishermen and they had some sort of, uh, of business arrangement between the fishermen there on the Sea of Galilee. And this is the word that Paul uses again to describe their their partnership. But Paul has something very specific in mind here. They had shared with Paul in his imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Paul was uniquely encouraged with these individuals or by these individuals because they had stuck with him through thick and thin. By the way, this would not have been a good time to align yourself with the Apostle Paul. He had just run afoul of the most powerful uh, empire in the known world, right? This would have been the time to take a couple of big steps backward from Paul. (laughs) That is not what this church did. Matter of fact, they sent Epaphroditus, a messenger, over a thousand miles from Philippi to Rome with a significant financial gift to help support him in his imprisonment. So in this sense, they shared with Paul in his imprisonment. They locked arms with Paul. Paul wasn't simply alone out there, but they were with him. They... Stayed right alongside of him. Paul might have also had in mind here that they shared in his imprisonment, not just through their financial gift, but also through their own suffering. We're going to go on to read that these Philippian believers were facing opposition. So just as Paul's suffering in Rome for the gospel, many of these people were suffering in Philippi because of the gospel. And in that sense as well, they had entered into a partnership or a sharing with Paul in his imprisonment. Again, relationships are often forged in the context of suffering and hardship. So time is one factor, right? Time, uh, relationships take time, friendships take time, but... but uh, oftentimes those relationships are forged in the context of suffering and hardship. Paul calls God as his witness, verse 8, to testify of his great love for these believers. He yearns for them. He misses them. He longs to be with them. It says that Paul yearned for them with the affection of Christ Jesus. And our modern English versions really do a nice job of cleaning this up for us. But if you're carrying your King James Version, you know that it says that he he loved them. Uh, Literally, it says, with the bowels of Christ Jesus. We usually think of emotion coming from the heart, right? But... In the biblical mind, in the first century world, you felt emotion in your gut. Right? You're heading into that big meeting. There's confrontation. 
You've been communicating via eHarmony, and now you're actually going to meet the person, right? I mean, you feel it. You feel it in your stomach, right? And, and Paul says, I, 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 I feel for you. I feel the compassion for you that Christ feels for you. There's this solidarity with Christ and with these believers. So we're moved to joy when we share in the struggle of a worthy cause. I made reference to those individuals who were here in 1995, that small group of folks. Uh, that was not an easy time in the life of this local church. The church had recently endured a significant split. There were a lot of tears shed. And those kinds of experiences really accelerated relationships. It's one of the things that bound our hearts together with those believers in this local church in those early years. I think we walked through something uh, similar with the Prepare the Way campaign. We just finished a major renovation. If you're new, you don't have any idea of the blood, sweat, and tears and the wrestling about that, but it was, a, it was an ambitious project, and we, we, it was going to cost more than we were able to spend. We had set a limit for how much we were willing to borrow, and so we had meetings to discuss what needed to get cut and what we needed to keep, and uh, there was some measure of, of tension and, and, and the wrestling of priorities in all of that. And yet again, uh, that's the stuff of strong relationships. You come out on the other side of those conversations stronger. So as you think about this, Paul, Paul again, praying with joy because of the faithfulness of these believers, even in the midst of hardship and suffering. So uh, do, do you stick with relationships, even through difficulty? And there's a good question for us. Are you a, a, a true friend or a fair-weather friend? If you remain on the fringe or you run at the first sign of difficulty, you don't ever develop deep relationships. You short-circuit the process. One of the most difficult things for me as a pastor and for our family is when people leave the church. Particularly when they leave because they're frustrated, right? Um, Or they're angry. Uh, After 26 years, I've come to the conclusion that it's going to happen, okay? That's a good place to come to. I can't please everybody. We can't please everybody. But it's still hard. And I think one of the things that makes it hard in those situations is sometimes I have this sneaking suspicion that they're just taking their anger and their frustrations and their problems with them to the next church. You know, to be honest, pastors are guilty of that too. (laughs) They they run into some difficulties and uh, they they have some people they have trouble getting along with, so they just go to the next church. (laughs) But if we could learn to, to, to lean in to find uh, those kinds of enduring relationships, to let the difficulties and the struggles of life um, shape us and forge those relationships, uh, th- this is what Paul is envisioning here. Part of what made these relationships so sweet is all that they had been through and the difficulties they had endured. So we're moved to joy when we share in the struggle of a worthy cause. 
We're moved to joy when we consider God's transforming work in the lives of his people. Moved to joy when we consider God's transforming work in the lives of his people. Verse 9, the end of this section. It is my prayer. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So Paul now moves into the request portion of his prayer, but he's still praying with joy. And he's now looking ahead. Before he was looking back, right, from the first day until now, and looking at their present suffering with him. But now he's looking ahead, praying that God would bring about increased effectiveness and fruitfulness and godly character He's excited about the impact that this church is going to have in the days to come. His prayer, his specific prayer, is that their love would abound more and more. Specifically, their love for each other. This is agape love. This is not uh, a feeling of love. It's not a sentiment. It is an act of the will the type of love, the type of commitment that puts the welfare of others ahead of your own. It is contrasted in Philippians with selfish ambition, just simply looking out for myself. So increasingly, he wants them to have a heart for others. Paul adds some other qualifiers. Uh, He wants their love to be continually growing, And he wants their love to be marked by knowledge and discernment. So he's not just asking for sort of this sentimental love. Just sing kumbaya, get along with everybody, stay in your own lane, don't make waves. This is not the kind of love that Paul's talking about. He's talking about an informed love, a love that is guided by knowledge and discernment. We must love what God loves, and we must hate what God hates. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, German pastor, uh, reflected on this. He reflected on the distinction between his idea of love, his definition of love, and the Bible's definition of love. Sometimes there's a gap there, isn't there? (laughs) Sometimes I have in my mind what it would be to love, but Scripture often challenges our mindset. Bonhoeffer said, Contrary to all my own opinions and convictions, Jesus Christ will tell me what love toward the brethren really is. Where Christ bids me to maintain fellowship for the sake of love, I will maintain it. Where his truth enjoins me to dissolve a fellowship for love's sake, there I will dissolve it despite all the protests of my human love. Sometimes truly loving someone doesn't feel like love. It doesn't feel good to, to, to challenge someone, to confront someone. That, that, that doesn't give me warm fuzzies. But it might be what is involved in truly loving someone. He goes on to reflect on it even in the context of church discipline. 
confrontation, confronting one another about our sin. And he says, nothing can be more cruel than the tenderness that consigns another to his sin. And nothing can be more compassionate than the severe rebuke that calls a brother back from the path of sin. It is a ministry of mercy, an ultimate offer of genuine fellowship. I think Bonhoeffer's helping us think about something very careful here, that we need to love as God would have us to love. We need to love according to God's definition of love. To let someone just wander off into the destructive path of sin is not love. That's cruelty. It's callousness. And conversely, to challenge someone, to speak a word of, of truth, to get in someone's face at times is not a cruel thing. It's, it's a mark of true friendship, genuine concern for a person's welfare. So I, I find this interesting that Paul, Paul's excited about what God's doing in the life of this church and, and excited to think about the transforming work of the gospel in the lives of these people. He wants to see them grow in love, true biblical love. He's excited to think about their effectiveness as they grow in grace. Matter of fact, he uses an imagery here at the end of uh, verses 10 and 11 uh, that they would be like a, a tree loaded with fruit, the fruit of righteousness, that their lives would become increasingly characterized by the character of Christ. And uh, that they would just be this wonderfully loaded fruit tree. And uh, he has this vision for what he sees God accomplishing in their lives. So there's our big idea. Gospel partnerships produce joy. Uh, Paul says as he starts into this section on prayer uh, that I'm praying for all of you with joy. These believers had spurred him on and fueled his joy. So geese fly further together, oxen pull more together, and believers experience more joy together. Are you striving? Are you contributing to the joy of other believers? Are you... uh, The goose in the back honking. Keep going. You're doing great. Keep up the good work. Are you a a source of joy? There's this church in Philippi, right, that was uh, really having a unique ministry to the Apostle Paul. I think we need to think about whether we are contributing to the joy of other believers. And are you deriving joy from other believers? Are you investing in types of relationships that will bring you joy. Uh, Sometimes I talk with people who uh, are experiencing discouragement, some legitimately so, some people clinical depression. Sometimes I have to ask them, are you utilizing the means of grace? God can accomplish his purposes in any number of ways, but he's chosen to use his people and his word and his spirit and his church Are you putting yourself in a position to receive the blessings and the encouragement and the joy that God has for you? Are you deriving joy from other believers? Are you prioritizing those kinds of relationships? 
We're praying that God increases our joy by strengthening our partnerships together.